I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. Welcome to Hurricane Season 2021, almost anyway, and the first podcast of our fourth season. This is podcast number 57 in our series. Luke, good to see you again. You as well. You're number four. Uh, we've been chasing down answers for four years now. It seems like there's more questions. They just oh, keep coming every time. And a lot of them came out of uh, last season. Today, to kick off this season, we're going to talk to Ken Graham, who is the director of the National Hurricane Center, of course. We'll get his thoughts on the crazy 2020 season, not just in terms of meteorology, but also in terms of operations, because they had to work uh, through the pandemic and figure out how to handle all those storms in that uh, exceptional situation and we'll find out what kind of lessons uh, came out of last year and what's coming up uh, down the road. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, May 26, 2021. If you're listening at some point in the future for the latest uh, weather information, you've got to tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida, of course, or Local10.com where we stream all of the Local 10 newscasts. Seems like newscasts are on all day and all night these days. Um, we have more coming all the time. And the Max Tracker Hurricane app, of course, will have the latest information and the Local 10 Weather Authority app for any current weather information. And check out Local10.com to sign up for a newsletter called From Brian Norcross. That's me. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on in the tropics anytime something's going on. And it'll get emailed directly to you if you sign up on Local10.com. I'll do one of those whenever there is something of interest going on in the tropics through hurricane season. And talking about the, uh, the big lessons uh, and topics to come out of the tropics this last uh, season, one I think was that the Euro model, the one that we have traditionally said this is the one we're going to pay the most attention to, was not great and was in general not the best model on a storm-by-storm -storm basis. And also is this whole discussion about when should hurricane season officially start. And the, uh, you know, we, we got an answer to that, that we're going to keep it on June 1st, but we'll talk to Ken Graham about those decisions um, in here in just a few minutes. And Luke, what else um, What else do you think came out of hurricane season 2020? Really the big one to me is with the background of a warming ocean and a warming climate and with 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, all being active seasons or hyperactive seasons and having very intense storms, is this just the way that it is now or will we come out of this phase eventually? I think that's something that we have to look back and, and see if maybe we can get some answers on. Yeah, well, that's a big discussion of, that came out of 2020. And, and although people had talked about it previously, uh, Carrie Emanuel out of MIT uh, talked about this and, and other people, but uh, Michael Mann, who is Dr. Michael Mann from Penn State, who's the climate best known as a, a, a climate voice, a very strong voice in the uh, climate change discussion. Uh, he came out with a paper this year uh, uh, declaring that this cycle of hurricanes is not a real thing. Essentially, the bottom line of that is that uh, you know what you see is what you get. This isn't something that we should look for an end to, not like every year is going to be like 2020, but that the background state of the oceans and the planet is not going to return to some sort of state that causes an extended period of fewer storms because, fundamentally, because that was caused by air pollution. 
back in the 70s and 80s, and that's what, what depressed the number of storms that cooled the oceans because we, you know, anybody that lived in the 70s remembers how dirty the air was over the, the United States and over Europe. Europe is actually the controlling place. What an ironic uh, result. Mm-hmm. that by cleaning the air and reducing pollution, the result is more hurricanes or more destructive hurricanes, just anti uh, the way that you thought it would go, anti-intuitive, counterintuitive. Yeah, and also, also we've had fewer volcanoes. So we had big volcanoes during that time. And if you go back and look, they've gone back and look historically. I mean, I'm talking about way back. And sure enough, during times when there were big volcanoes, in the world, there was a period of cooler oceans that followed because the volcanoes put uh, uh, different kinds of debris in the atmosphere, but sulfur dioxide primarily, and that cuts down on the amount of heat that reaches the ocean. So you end up with a slightly cooler ocean. You end up with fewer storms as a result. At least that's the discussion. In fact, we'll talk next week with Phil Klotzbach about that because uh, you know he's talked about that, and Dr. Bill Gray who was his mentor. Um, I remember Bill talking about that uh, years ago. So anyway, it's a very interesting or a change in the way we've traditionally thought about how busy hurricane season should be. So yeah, anyway, that's coming up. So talk about the tropics right now. Last year on this date, we already had one named storm and we were watching for another one already, Bertha, which formed uh, a year ago tomorrow on the 27th that died quickly. And then the sea storm already came along on June 1st. Well, we've had one named storm, Anno, which developed out of the big wintertime low pressure system over the Atlantic and moved out to sea, died pretty much as forecast. But now um, there's nothing, nothing going on, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see anything anytime soon. No, I saw the first African easterly wave about mm-hmm. to come off of Africa. I think it's the first one of the season. I'm not for sure on that, but that's it. Uh, it's way it's not going to do anything. So quiet's the word for now. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this last, was it last week? Uh, Anna was last week, right? The more interesting system, I think, was the one in the Gulf that ended up not developing, but it was almost Bill, and it came in to the Houston area with very heavy rain, just south of, of downtown, actually, the southern part of Harris County, and winds uh, at or near tropical storm strength there right along the coast, but it didn't organize <laughs> until it got over land, and by that time it was already weakening, and we see that on occasion. So that, was, that was really an interesting system. Boy, it looked like, Bill, once it got inland, it did. On radar, it had the spiral bands and everything. It sure looked tropically once it got in, but it, I know it wasn't quite there. But Well, yeah, so I, I don't, you know, that's a good question. Do we know that it wasn't? It's not unheard of. Uh, Emily in Oklahoma in 2007 did that. Right, but it's not unheard of for storms to intensify over land. I mean, Hurricane Andrew uh, did that. Even after it came over the coastline, it continued to intensify because the atmospherics were coming together, yes, the thermodynamics from the warm oceans were going away, but the atmospherics were coming together and, and counteracted it, right? So the dry air, and in this case, the unfavorable upper-level winds that, were, uh, that kept Bill from forming, that finally led up, but didn't let up until it was ashore, and it still had enough circulation to have the mechanics to uh, create the system. So 
I wonder, that's an interesting question well, um, that we will have to ask some at some point. You know, plus, there was, remember, it was embedded in that just channel of moisture. So there right. was all kinds of rain uh, that had dropped right before Bill, what, what could have been built, uh, went over that. So it right. still had a lot of moisture and energy from that to draw from. It's not like it just went into a normal dry land once it, uh, once it came ashore. It was a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. And we had, of course, a big discussion last year about the, the start of hurricane season and so forth. And uh, we'll talk to Ken Graham about that. In fact, let's go ahead and bring in Ken Graham, the director of the National Hurricane Center. Hi, Ken. Welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back, Ryan. Good to see you. So how are you guys doing? Are, are you back to normal there yet? Are you still recovering and dealing with 2020 uh, and everything that happened last season? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you ask that because, you know, you go through a record-breaking season, 30 named storms. I mean, the most we've had in 170 years of record-keeping, and we did that during a pandemic. Um, I don't know if getting back to, to normal is possible. It's like this new norm that that takes place. So to, to be able to do what we did last season in a pandemic was was something else. But we're, you know, we're, we still got the precautions here. We're ready for the 2021 season, that's for sure. And these days, there's just so much more data to analyze. You know, it's not you're looking at a few models and a, and a satellite or, or something like that. And, and, you know, some data we've had for a long time, but so much more. Now, it's, I mean, it's certainly hard for us to feel like we have an overview. And I imagine for the forecasters that have to crank everything out right on schedule and then to do that from home. All that come together, was it, you know, was it difficult? Was it uh, just, you know, one of these things that everybody kind of had in their mind, a way to do it and figured it out? Or how did that happen so quickly? Because really it all happened right, right at the beginning of this incredible hurricane season. Yeah, Brian, it was unprecedented. So it was, you know, it was a heavy lift to be able to get that done. So we knew you know, you just had to have fewer people in the building, that's for sure. So we were able to, you know, the team here was able to put together some some systems to be able to do some of those operations from home. If we could have a mixture of some people at home, some people in the office, that served to just keep fewer people in the building. Basically, that, that was the goal. Uh, we even set up cohort scheduling where, you know, pairs of two would see each other, but they wouldn't see anybody else uh, the rest of the season. Even some of those shift changes Believe it or not, it was interesting to, to hear a telephone call, somebody sitting in the parking lot doing a, a shift change with somebody in the building. Uh, that's the, the extreme nature that we, we went through. And we, we moved workstations into offices where we can close the door and, and seal it up, um, masks, one-way hallways, um, just the, every precaution we could think of to keep this place going the, the entire season. So to think about the IT work, I mean, a lot of credit goes to these in, incredibly smart individuals that figured out a way to be able to, to do the operations home. They had most of the data that you had here. They were able to do it from home. Now, they may not have four or five, 10 monitors all over them, but but they were able to at least have the information on a, a couple monitors and we were, were able to, to get that done. But those precautions just were absolutely just incredible to, to stay safe. And well, in the end, we went through a record-breaking season in a pandemic and we kept folks safe here so we could keep the public safe. Well, that's it. You were certainly tested, not only with the pandemic, but with this 30 named storms in a single season type of year that we had. So I'm just thinking of it from a workflow standpoint with the pandemic and how you guys had to operate going ahead. Will you make any permanent changes? Like, will more people work from home or will eventually everybody come back into the office? What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, and we're already starting to have more people come back in, into the building. We're starting to see some of that uh, happen as we speak. But, you know, I think the long term uh, thing will be uh, there's some sort of hybrid. You know, I think there's a situation where, you know, you have a, a hurricane. We're going to have most people here. But, you know, in other circumstances, maybe you have some sort of blend of people in the office and at home. I, you know, I think we proved that it could work. So that's something that we've got to sort through. I mean, that's a big topic of conversation, um, you know, for the most part on how we're going to what we're going to look like. But it's probably some sort of hybrid uh, how we do it. But in the end, you know, you got some of the strongest and most, you know, secure systems here in the building. So in the in the big, uh, you know, hurricanes, I mean, for the most part, most people are going to be here. Um, you know, that that's where really we're doing our business, especially if you have a South Florida threat when, you know, you got to stay safe inside this secure building. This is a this is a pretty, pretty strong building with a 10 inch thick concrete walls. Uh, this is be one of the safest places to be. Yeah. And you don't know if you're going to lose communications uh, to somebody's house or something like that. Right. And when you you need the whole team for sure. So we talked a lot about last year and then again this year about the question of when does the hurricane season officially start and a decision was made to keep it on June 1st, except that you started producing the tropical weather outlooks, the kind of tropics overview uh, bulletins every six hours beginning on the 15th of May. What was the thought process uh, behind that final decision? Well, the final decision, Cam, we, we knew we needed to do something different with the outlooks because, I mean, the way it's been at, at the time, six years in a row, uh, that we had a season, you know, a system before June 1st and now, of course, seven, and, and I, th I think it's a better service to, for everyone to expect when those outlooks will be coming out. Otherwise, we were issuing special outlooks. Who's on shift? Who's going to come in? And, and on the other end, the emergency managers or, or media. Yes, us. Well, trust me. <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. they going to get an outlook? You're not going to get an outlook. What are they <laughs> right, doing? Exactly. That's, yeah. not, that's not good service, Brian. So, <laughs> so that, that was the easy part. It's like we were already doing that outlook on May 15th for the Pacific. Just have the Atlantic. We're already here yeah. type of thing. So. Right. That, that that part was easy to, to do that. Now the season, what to do there? There's, you know, we can do it. I mean, we I could bring that to the, the World Meteorological Organization, Region 4, uh, the Hurricane Committee. That's where that decision will be made. There's 28 countries and I'm the chair of that committee. Um, so similar to the Greek alphabet names and not using those into the future, I could bring that proposal, uh, but, I, but I need to have some data first because there really are some, some good parts of it and there's other parts we we have to think about from a social science perspective because the earlier we start you know we get you're getting pretty far from the peak of the season i mean so we're going to do you know a significant amount of preparedness and then you know a regular season not last year you know you have a, a slight lull in june uh, and july and then you really pick up with the, the most dangerous storms so you're getting pretty far away from the most dangerous part of the the hurricane season so i mean that's what one thing to consider the other part is if it's May fifteenth, you know, Brian, we're going to be we're going to be starting in what March, um, getting ready for the season, and we're at the same time we're trying to get this country prepared for tornadoes. So now we're we're doing a lot of hurricane uh, preparedness when we still have significant amount of severe weather season to go. So there there are some pluses and some minuses to be honest, and and most of those storms before June first, they're subtropical. I mean, you could definitely have some impacts. I, I definitely get that. Um, but, you know, do we really want to do this for those? So we have a team, got a team put together. Uh, they're going to look at the feasibility, uh, the, you know, the climatology. They're going to look at the social science part of it. And if it's something we want to do, we'll throw it into the committee, that World Meteorological Organization Committee, and see what the other countries think. But in the end, it would be a vote. The 28 countries, as a chair, I don't get to vote. 
Uh, but with Dan Brown, our awarding coordination meteorologist, has the United States vote. But and we would vote on it and see what happens. Is anybody really confused if the storm pops up? And it doesn't feel like we have any kind of big confusion over over that, right? I mean, storms no. can happen any time of the year. Storms in general can happen any time of the year. Yeah, and you have tornadoes. You ha you have you know significant severe weather events outside the traditional season um, as well. So it's not a it's not you know, the hurricane program is not alone in this phenomenon. So, but we hear it, there, there's an incredible amount of public interest on, on when that season starts. And, I, and I, I, I would think after doing, Brian, we've probably done 150, 200 type of, of interviews and, and presentations. I would venture to say that was the number one question <laughs> going into this season was, when, are we gonna do this earlier or not? It's interesting how much interest there is in it. Right. Yeah. and with the prep part of it if you're at all like you know my family where we have the peanut butter set aside for hurricane season as we prepare enough time goes by your peanut butter supply runs low i'll just i'll sweep into that and then maybe i'll add to it later i'll put a little bit of that generator gas into my lawnmower and then you're not really prepared whenever the time comes or you could get caught off guard but as far as prep goes we and you and pretty much everybody else encourage people to stock up on hurricane supplies at the start of the season, like now. And a lot of energy goes into that. We are about to do our hurricane special. It's coming out at the end of the month. But do we know if people really do that? Or do you think people are more likely to do it once they see a storm coming? I think I think the answer to that question is, you know, once once we see a storm coming, you, you look at the lines. <laughs> so you, you see the lines at, 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 you know, of course, gasoline is maybe a different topic here, but you see the lines at the grocery store, you see some significant lines getting ready. So I think that answer is part of the question. I think there's there's a lot of folks that get some of that stuff ready, um, but there's there's many that wait wait for that storm. And that, that's significant because you see the long line. So, you know, we really like to talk about when we talk about preparing early, one of the things that, that we can talk about is, do you really want to stand in that mess? You know, at, at home we have we have a box in the in the garage, and just slowly, you don't have, we don't go buy. Let's fill our hurricane kit. It's you know, it's like if you buy one thing of peanut butter, let's buy the second one to to put in there, or you know, things of that nature that are you know non non perishable that can sit in the hurricane box. So we just do it slowly, and and you keep everything there, and it's ready to go. We really try to avoid that rush because why be so stressed? You know, so I think it's a mixture, but the long lines point to a significant amount of people probably do wait. So let's get ready now. Let's start building that kit and have it ready to go. Yeah. And when storms really start happening, even if they don't come here, I think that that, that uh, does it too. Let's talk about last uh, hurricane season uh, in the tropics. From a broad standpoint, why was the season so active? What factors came together to make that happen? Right. It, it was all the factors that, that aid in developing these systems all came together. I mean, the obvious ones, the oceans are warm. And, and that's not just the amount of storms. We saw nine tropical cyclones that rapidly intensify. That's interesting to me. Um, nine, that, nine of them, that's pretty that's a little scary. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought so. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, regroup yeah. here a second because that's just an incredible stat. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that and the problem with that is not just rapidly intensifying. A lot of the a lot of that took place near the coast. Right. Some of the systems were they were continuing to to intensify all the way in. So it's really interesting. So the, the ocean temperatures were there. We had times to, to, to this is an interesting thing that I reflect on. You go back to uh, Isaias and, and remember how much shear we had. And the whole storm was 
look at the camera to make sure I could do this. But it was tilted because of the, the, the upper shear. Every time the shear weekend, Boom. that storm intensified. Yeah, right. Everything right. was just ready to go. And a little right. bit of shear would just keep it at bay, but it didn't stop it. So the ocean temperatures, the shear profile, um, you look at the number of uh, monsoonal storms coming off of Africa. Remember those just launching them into the Atlantic and into a region that they, they could develop. Um, but the other part is, this is kind of a, I guess it's not a pet peeve, but it's an important topic of mine, is the hurricane, they, they don't care about anybody's timeline. And, and you think about how many formed and really didn't get their act together until there was about three days left uh, to get ready. Uh, that's something we have to think about because we, we, we do these exercises that you know, assume there's seven days notice, assume there's 10 days notice. Not every hurricane's Florence, where, you know, you go all the way across the Atlantic and, and see it. They're Michaels. They're, they're the ones that go across the Yucatan and get into the Gulf. It's like, what's going to be left? <laughs> right, right. Going over land, what's going to be left? So there, there's, there's those type of things. And, and not every storm's, you know, Laura, where, you know, it was fairly consistent in the forecast. There's the Marcos and the Sallies that were, incredibly difficult to forecast because I remember the hurricane hunters going into the storm and with Sally, the center, the actual center of the storm was jumping. There were times there were multiple centers. So a small 10, 15 mile jump in that center would shift that forecast and two days later, what, 40 or 50 miles. And as a result, that's, that's tough to get ready for in those situations. So everything came together really um, to, to to continue this 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 season so long, but it, you know, think about this, right? Usually by you know, usually you get a lot of storms in October. I I, I give you that, and usually that's by it. Middle of October, <laughs> yeah. I know you usually say, okay, we're we're in pretty good shape. This season continued all the way deep into November, and to get the strong storms as strong as we did in November, that's something I you don't see too often. Uh, you know, it reminded me of two thousand five, where anything that started spinning came together and any opportunity and it's almost like there was like the whole atmosphere was wanting to lift right everything wanted to lift up it I and mean, I remember that in 2005 it was just noticeable that any chance it had uh, the storm seemed to take advantage so so the forecasts were were generally for a busy season I mean all the people that that make these seasonal forecasts but they didn't count on the incredible number nobody predicted 30 of course do you think this is kind of similar to forecasting other extreme events and and whether the the factors that come together to push the situation into record or extreme territory are so subtle that we can't really see the difference between in this case busy super busy and extreme it's like we can't see often the difference between a category strong category three and a category five sometimes we you know it's that the, the that uh, subtle difference in structure or something that is just very very difficult or impossible to detect that makes that difference yeah what what and it, it it is and it's a matter of scale right so when you when you get to the hurricane scale it's it's those subtle things most we understand right the the sheer a vertically stacked type storm, um, you know, the things that come together to, to make a strong storm. But there's other factors. What what makes a, a storm rapidly intensify like some of the things that we saw this year? And what, what has to come together uh, to make that happen so many times? Um, 
so there's still some things we, we understand quite a bit. We've cut our errors in half over the last couple of decades. So we're, we're on the right track, but there's still some science here that is still needs to be uncovered and, and why that happens. So you take those uncertainties in the storm scale and now from a global scale, you know, in general, we know what goes into it, warm, warm oceans, um, you know, weak, uh, weak shear, right? That, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a positive for development, a strong African monsoon, um, you put those things together, you, you think about what, so in general, we could say, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be greater than average or average. I mean, we have those techniques, but what makes it hyperactive? And so there's still some parameters there that I, I think still could be uncovered because who would have predicted 30 storms? Right. You know, you know, nobody did. <laughs> no, there's no yeah. way. And yeah. so what makes that happen? There's still some things to, to uncover. And even those global scales, when they come together, there may be some smaller scales um, items that we're still 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 need to uncover, and you know we, we we do a pretty good job, but there's still some science to be uncovered to figure this stuff out. So, Ken, in the post-analysis reports for each storm, the forecast difficulty for that storm is listed. So, some situations they're just harder to forecast, just the way it is. But looking at the season overall, how do you rate it? in terms of forecast difficulty? And also, how did the official National Hurricane Center forecast do compared to average errors? Yeah, we, we looked at that once again. And, and you know, you look at, one thing to remember, this kind of brings up the topic of, you know, you, you, I'll, I'll use, you know, Sally and, and Laura for, for a good example. So overall, we once again beat any individual model. I mean, there's, there's storms that, that are closer than others with, with the verification. We did better on some. And, and some are more difficult. And so that you're going to have that every single. So overall, the whole season, we did better than the models. And, and we, we had a great, great season once again with those forecasts. But here's the difference. Here's the subtlety that we have to talk about. You know, you look at historically, the stronger the storm, the more the intensity, the better our track. And if you, if you have a storm that's in Genesis phase, just starting, or a weak storm that's moving slow and the center's bouncing around, our verification scores aren't as good. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things, how do we, how do we portray the confidence in, in those two different situations? You look at the LoRa forecast, they're all so consistent. And if you're an emergency manager, you like that. You like that consistency because you make a decision, you're not bouncing around. But in LoRa, the models were trending to the west. There were models trending to the west, west of our forecast, and that was putting Houston in play. That was putting more of uh, Texas in play. And so there was deterministic models looking at one track. They're available to everybody. They see them. There was a lot of worry seeing a, a line or two going that that direction. So we, we, we trying to educate more and more and, and understand how we do that. We, we're not looking at those deterministic models. That's one solution. You know, within each one of those models, we have ensembles. So multiple solutions in each one of those models. So I don't know how many, in the end, you're looking at 40, 50 different solutions. We're blending those, blending those together. We can weight those based on how well they initialize. If it didn't initialize well, then you're probably gonna have problems downstream. And in the end, the NAC forecast still beats any individual model um, every single time. So that's why we say the official forecast is the one to, to keep looking at. So you think about, what if we started pushing that forecast and jumping around because of the model? We, Houston might have evacuated. So we, we you know, in a, in a COVID environment, especially in a pandemic, we, we take very serious evacuating those that need to evacuate, unsurvivable, the Louisiana situation, 100% evacuation compliance 
and nobody died in the storm surge despite a measurement of 17.1 feet of storm surge, which is just staggering, but we're able to prevent others from evacuating. And, and people lose their lives in those evacuations. And evacuation is a dangerous thing. People on the roads, you got sheltering, you got COVID. Um, it was a very difficult year for, for that. So I think I answered your question. I went all sorts of different places, but that's okay. But yeah, it, it, that, that's what we look at. Multiple models, you can't look at one track. Yeah, you did. And you hit on a number of questions that, that I'll have that we'll circle back to, especially with Laura. But uh, with the models, you know, the one thing that always comes to the surface is the European. The European seems to be the gold standard. It's the vaunted model. And it had a hard time last year, or at least it seemed to. Uh, do you agree with that? And I mean, how did the models do overall? We already know that, you know, the Hurricane Center forecasts beat them as they do every year, which is, you know, the skill to the Hurricane Center forecasters. But the Europeans seem to have a rough year. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because traditionally you'll have one model perform better than the other on one storm. It's like, oh, we're going to look at this model. And the next storm comes around and it flip-flops to the other way. So you have some of that situation. But Laura in particular, the European really wanted to take those tracks towards the, the west and we didn't buy off on it we didn't buy off on it we, we stuck to it and, and we you know and, and, a, and a whole a whole lot of folks didn't have to evacuate because of that so yeah it, it's it struggled in some of those storms but it did well in some others we got some hurricane specific models that did well on some storms than the others this goes back to you just got to be careful you know, picking one model and, and carrying it through the entire season. I, I've seen some of the hurricane specific models nail two or three storms in a row. And it's a best practice. Everybody's got to go to this. And then it, you know, then there'll be a storm that it, that it really struggles and can't get it right. And one of the global models get, get it the best. So it flip-flops all around. The ensemble approach is definitely the way to go. It, it beats any individual model every single time over the long term. When you say ensemble, you mean the averaging multiple models, that kind of ensemble. As exactly. opposed to because, yeah. because in Laura, the European-only ensembles, the variety of European models, they were all over the West, too. I mean, it was, it was, it was a scary moment there. I, I was... Uh, I was feeling it, you know, for you guys yeah, we, having to make we forecasts. <laughs> oh, we were too. You know, yeah. you, you couldn't you couldn't sleep because yeah. you know there's a lot of a lot of people, um, you know, in, in that part of the country. So, but but when you look at those ensembles, you put the GFS, the American model ensembles, all the other hurricane specific models. You put all those on there, and, and pretty soon it nudges, it keeps our forecast where it was, mm -hmm. and that's why looking at one. You know, you could get a, a solution that you know, may not come true in the end, but if you blend them all together, it's, it's always going to be closer that way. Not just the ensemble in one model, but the ensembles of all the models, blending those um, usually ends up being a pretty good solution. Yeah, I think a giant lesson of 2020 is quit looking at one model, right? Look at the, you know, look at the National Hurricane Center forecast. As a matter of fact, is it frustrating for you and, you know, your team there and the people that are making these forecasts and have had year in, year out success making forecasts, the amount of uh, traffic in models that there is in social media and on television, actually. Look at the GFS, look at the Euro, uh, look at, you know, not to, not to even mention, look, you know, 300 hours out. That's a whole different problem, right? But even just look uh, 48 hours from now at, the, at one particular model, and kind of taking the eye off the Hurricane Center forecast. It, uh, to me, that's frustrating. I'm sure it is to you. It, it is. I mean, you, you, 
the, the, the issue is, you know, you, 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 look, you get phone calls in, in the middle of these, you know, I get a phone call. I won't say from where it doesn't matter. You get a phone call and it says, you know, did you see the latest European model? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're looking at it. I, I guarantee you we're looking at it. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's a tendency. Everything's so available. You know, there's a tendency. It's not just remember that. I just remember the old days. Everybody's sitting in front of a. You go back to the old days with the old computers and the weather service. Even now, we all sit right by the computer as each different new model uh, forecast comes out. It's line by line. It's coming yeah. out. And you're like, there it is. You, you follow. I wrote it. a you're book about that, Ken. Uh, Hurricane yeah. Andrew is standing over the Divax machine. What went? Yes. But, but, but. It was us. It was the <laughs> yes. neurologist who right. were doing that. And right. what's happening now is every a lot of people are. There's a lot of, right. a lot of weather enthusiasts so everybody's waiting for the latest one so yeah you're going to have some of that but we just got to keep educating be careful using that one model um it they got to understand you know that the, what the hurricane center's forecast is beating those um every time it's good to look at them right you're looking at them. the problem what the problem we have is this is what what happens is if you have let's just say you have three or four different forecast tracks one of them might be just ours right mm -hmm. there's the hurricane center here's this model here's this one you look at all of them there's a human tendency it's a psychological thing you're going to pick the line that best fits your personality type <laughs> it's it's real it, and it's it's one of these that you know, if you're, you're you know we're going to get hit there it is i don't know what that is but that line comes here and it influences decisions and if you're a, a different type of person we call it more positive i don't know you you say well, I know these all three of these lines are, are coming my way, but I like that other one. It takes it over to to, to another place. I, I want to bank everything on that. The problem becomes we start making decisions on that. And, the, and really, the decisions have to be made on the official forecast, which we coordinate with emergency managers. We we talk to, to the media. We're all on the same page. And you got to listen to those local officials because they're, they're paying attention to our forecast. Okay, Kim, while we're on models, one more quick question for you. You know, we're all familiar with the GFS, European, UK Met, so on and so forth, but there are other new models. Uh, the big one, or one big one, is NOAA's HCCA consensus model. This is the one that smartly, you know, uh, it's the one that the forecasters write about in the National Hurricane Center discussions. Is that one and other more recently developed track and intensity models, are they going to be distributed at some point? I think like all of them, I mean, I, I go back to, you know, a journey forecaster in New Orleans and, and to see the, to see all the models in one, in one image, we used to have to go to a, a, a Navy system on this brand new thing called the internet back in the late nineties. And we had to enter a password into there just to see what we call the spaghetti plots. Now it was all, it was all behind the scenes. You know, you enter the password in there, you look at it, it was like, wow, all the models in one place. So I think just like what happened with those, I think eventually, um, you know, after they, they go through these experimental phases, everything usually ends up getting out. So I, I think with time, you start seeing those more widely distributed. I think there's so much research that goes into those. A lot of that takes place in Miami. We have the Hurricane Research Division uh, right here in Miami. Think about it. we got the researchers and the operational folks on the same city. And, and a little bit of cool thing that I haven't talked about too much publicly yet, we're converting, and you all know we have the, the library here um, at NAC, and we're going to convert that into a basically a, a test bed. Really excited about it. It's a partnership with 
with uh, HRD, it's a partnership uh, with, with the multiple NOAA line offices and eventually beyond, we're gonna get the, the, the research meteorologists back really close to the, the operational meteorologists. So we're gonna try to turn around that research operations a lot quicker. I'm super excited about that. So when you say a test bed, where the library is there at the NAC, you're saying you're gonna make that a lab essentially. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, excited about it. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, it's, it's gonna start off with the research meteorologists and of course with our operational folks, but we're gonna grow it to have social scientists and have have media experience the, the hurricane from, from here and see how it works. We really have some pretty big visions for it. Super, super excited about it. We're gonna make we're gonna make that happen. So definitely I haven't talked about it much publicly, but I would love to brainstorm with you um, on this vision. Yeah, I, I haven't been in that library a long time because a lot of it has been digitized now. So that yeah. we, now we get it on the internet. So uh, talking about uh, the development of models, uh, I think it's accurate to say that track forecasts have improved uh, dramatically, although the improvement is kind of leveling off here over the last several years, if you look at all the averages, although individual storms are much better. But if you look at intensity forecasts and discount rapidly intensifying ones, which of course you can't totally do, but if you do like take those out of the equation, they're getting uh, better as well as I, as I read the, the data. Uh, what's your take on uh, how much room there is to improve in the models and how close we're coming up on, you know, the ability just to forecast these things that are fundamentally chaotic at, at some level. Uh, are we close to that yet or in track maybe uh, and room to go at intensity or what are you thinking? I think, I think track we're getting, I think we're getting pretty close. I, th I think it's really close to you know what what we can do maybe there's some more improvement there i think we got definitely more room with intensity and it's hard you're right it's hard to take the the rapid intensification ones out of this equation because you notice when we talk about intensity we're getting better it's not perfect um, but we're still getting better with the intensity but notice every time i always try to bend the conversation back towards these rapid intensifying ones because i think in my mind i'm like we got to get a handle on this we got to mm -hmm. because if you rapidly intensify close to the to the coast you've cut that timeline. So an emergency manager or the public trying to get ready for these storms, all of a sudden you're thinking about a storm of, of, of this intensity and then rapid intensification occurs and you think about this other in, intensity, that, that, that timeline's so short. So I think we're getting pretty close on, on the track, but this is the other thing that's an interesting conversation, by the way, and I, I don't hear this topic too often, but at, at what point you can shoot for, you know you can shoot for perfection of course from a scientific perspective wouldn't you like to be a mile off every time or less but the reality is at what point are we good enough that we can provide a good public service to get people out of harm's way and save lives and, it, and it's an interesting way to to look at it because if you if you're able to get close enough that we can evacuate the right people that need to evacuate and the other people that don't need to evacuate don't evacuate we're in business i mean that's really why we're doing this now, when you get to the intensity, it becomes more difficult because then all of a sudden, you know, you run into to issues with, you know, evacuation zones. Um, the other the other part, we're really trying to do a, a better job and we haven't had time to talk about the storm surge model yet. We're talking about the other models. This season, we've got a huge, huge improvement to the slosh model and the storm surge model. It's a big deal. So it's not just the conversation we're having with, with track and, and the intensity structure matters. 
the structure of that storm, of course, the forward speed really matters so much. The bigger the storm, the slower the storm, more storm surge. So we're going to get the structure of the storm better into the storm surge model. And I think we're going to get a better storm surge forecast. But here's what I'm excited about. The number one request we get from emergency managers, we want more time. We want a six day. We want a seven day. We want you to go further out in time. And it's not as simple as I, I, I kind of got the job coming in here going, I was going to push. Let's get to seven days. Why don't we do a seven day forecast till you start seeing some storms 500 to 1,000 miles uh, with error. What do you do with that? How do you portray that and not let cer certain uh, areas off the hook like we would have in Florence? Um, so I think structure is the other part we got to we can we can do better on. So we're, anyway, long answer to your question. We're getting better with the track. We have work to do with intensity. I think we can we really need to do better with the, the anticipated and forecast structure. And, and we got to get the forward speed correct because that can highly influence the rainfall rates and the storm surge. And I think that um, along those lines, you talk about it a lot. I talk about it a lot. The most dangerous example that we have in hurricanes is that the strongest hurricanes that we have in record that have hit the United States all developed really quickly near the coast and did not have long lives, right? That's, that's really the, the scariest thing about hurricane stats, I think. I think last season we put that, that together and it was scary. It was frightening putting it together. So the, the, we, we put together looking at the category five storms that hit, hit, the, hit the United States, just the continental United States. And wow, only been four. You, know, you, you think about those storms. I mean, you know, definitely uh, several impacting Florida. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting out of those four, every one of those was a tropical storm three days prior. That's that's goosebumps. I mean that mm -hmm. that means these giant monsters of including Michael, right? Camille, or you look at Andrew, you look at these Cat Five storms. Three days prior, you're looking at a tropical storm. How do you get people fired up for that? How do you how do you get people prepared for that when they literally have three days notice uh, for a Category Five? That's why hurricanes just flat don't care about our timelines. And I, I, I I've given so many talks. And I gave, you know, internationally and domestic, and I always include that portion in there that man, you work a set your seven day plan, you work the same seven day plan, 10 day plan every year, you're pretty comfortable. I've sat in those exercises, Brian, and everybody's mm -hmm. comfortable. We did good. We're ready. I'm really encouraging. And we, we have to spread the word that you have to work those exercises, that seven to 10 day plan, work it in three days. Right. Work all the things you have seven to 10 days to do. Now compress it to do all those things in three days. Break your plan. Really got to break your plan and, and rethink how we do it because not every storm is going to give you that notice. Yeah, those storms were tropical storms three days out. But even, you know, then you probably wouldn't forecast the Cat 5 explicitly at that point. That's what they ended up being. But, you know, you might have two days to prepare for something that is that high end. You know, it's, it's just difficult to say, but let's talk about a couple specific storms. Ken, Sally, this one's a confounding one. It developed right off South Florida. We worked it, I remember it. It was somewhat unexpected. Then once it was in the Gulf, uh, the models and the National Hurricane Center forecast, they aimed it towards Southeast Louisiana, but it ended up further east. Uh, the Western Florida Panhandle, they got a hurricane warning without ever getting a hurricane watch. Do we know why this one was so difficult? Was it simply just because it was slow moving or do you think there were other factors at play? That, that, that storm was so unique. I, I just know there's gonna be so much research on, on Sally. And, and it was one of those things that it was moving so slow 
go back and look at the track. It's there's zigzags. The center of that thing zigzagged around. And and the issue is the hurricane hunters would, would get in there and, and they would say, well, it looks like we have another load developing. And it looks like the, the center's reforming uh, towards the, the, the northeast. So every time you get that five mile or 10 mile change, it was the whole center moving so slow. You had multiple lows in there that, and you'd have a new center formed to the northeast. Even if it's five or 10 miles, that's, that's 30 miles on the coast. You know, that could be easily 30 miles on the coast. So it, it just, you know, the slow nature, bouncing around, wobbling around, um, that's what happened. And you actually get a fan from, you go back, back and look at it from Louisiana, eventually over to Mississippi, um, Alabama, and, and then even portions of Florida. So yeah, trying to play catch up on a storm that's bouncing around. But once once you get the models, and, and even us, we're, we're going back and forth. You see the center, this is where the forecast should go. But then the next time you get a little bounce in that center, uh, a very difficult difficult storm to forecast are also different. I mean, look at the consistency yeah. of Laura. Uh, you have it. Remember Marco? Marco was, we were all over the place on Marco too, because you had interactions with Laura. So the models are trying to say, well, now I have two hurricanes I'm trying to, to deal with, and they have trouble resolving that in the actual model data. So and when that happens, you know, it's a struggle. So yeah, they're not always the same. And, uh, you know, we, it's interesting. We, there's, there's always, yeah, there's always ways we can do things better. When you look at the cone, um, you know, it's like, well, you know, you know, the impacts are outside the cone. But remember that two thirds of the time we expect the center to be in that cone. Historically, a third of the time is still outside the cone. And, and it, so in a slow system, you ever notice that in the fast systems, the, the, the cone, because the timing is pretty, pretty narrow by the time you get in there. But a slow system, when you're looking at even if the distance isn't there, the cone is just wide. And, and it just looks strange and it's hard to perceive. But that's one of those things that just there was a huge area um, inside that cone. we got to get better talking about those possibilities, I guess. Harvey was the greatest example of the biggest cone I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's just uh, they're all the same size, but just how it looked like one big circle. But I guess, you know, Sally's another case where it's kind of proof that even with all the advances in hurricane forecasting that we have, there's still these fringe cases that can surprise us. You're still going to have difficult forecasts and storms aren't really over till they're over. Brian and I were talking before the podcast a little bit about Laura, and Laura keeps coming up. Brian, uh, what were your thoughts on, I, th I think you had a question for Ken. Well, yeah, Laura. so I, it really is, uh, as you talked about, Ken, it was, it was an amazing gutsy uh, forecast. I mean, I, you know, I take my hat off to the forecasters and you guys all that, that made the decisions and worked that. But I just have to feel like uh, after the fact, like right after the storm came ashore and it missed the opening of the waterway that would have taken the storm surge all the way up to Lake Charles by a, a handful of miles, that there was this uh, Monday morning quarterbacking that turned out to, you know, throw incomplete passes in the end because they were all wrong. But were you just really kind of, shocked and disappointed that people that should have known better i mean skilled meteorologists were on social media so quickly saying that it was over forecast it was overhyped it was this it was that i mean i i really i was i was very disappointed in our profession um, during that time yeah I imagine. what a what an incredible forecast and yeah i mean we're we were reflecting on it thinking, wow, you made us, you know, we didn't sleep for days, right? We were up for two or three days with no sleep. And then we were, you know, the great forecast, we, we knew we saved lives. And then, we, yeah, we saw all that too. And it was, 
it was pretty shocking. And I, and I think in the end, you know, the, the truth always uh, comes out that it was a good forecast. So I think I think what we're trying to do is counter that with with some 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 science and education. So I don't know if you've seen the the map. If you don't have it, I'll send it to you. We we made a we made a map um, of Hurricane Laura twenty miles to the west. Yeah, I saw right? it. I don't know if you've seen it. I yeah. saw it. Yeah. So it, it, that is, we have to put that in every educational tool, not just for the public, but for, for our, our profession, because you that's a little wiggle. 20 miles is a little wiggle wobble. And if you move Laura 20 miles to the, to the west, the change in the storm surge right there on the Louisiana coast was 15 feet. And for Lake Charles, 10 feet, yeah. 10 feet difference in storm surge, pushing that storm 20 miles to the west. And, and you know, if, Two days out, I'm not. We can't put lives on the line for a little wiggle. You can't do it. So it has to be, it has to be a probabilistic approach, like we do it. And, and the goal here is what? Is to get people out. The goal here is to the the, the ones that need to evacuate got to be out, or they're going to lose their lives. In this case, an uns, unsurvivable amount of storm surge, and that that's not a word we take lightly. That's you know rare if ever have we used that. And so if you think about that situation, so yeah, it's. It's one of those things that we, we have to understand why we don't use a deterministic method in our profession. Lives are on the line. You have to use uncertainty. You have to use probabilistic ways to do it. And it's gonna be overdone in the end, but two days prior, it's the right thing to do because the goal is to get people out. We can't risk lives on a little wiggle. Can't do it. Ken, let me ask you about that word. That was something that caught a lot of headlines when the National Hurricane Center chose to put in unsurvivable to describe the storm surge. That's something everybody can understand, the 10, 15 feet, oh, unsurvivable, it, it covers all bases. And we had a cat four, 150 mile per hour storm heading toward Louisiana. And in the end, there were no deaths related to storm surge with that storm. It seems that the residents heeded the warning. And it reminded me of the recently, I think it's been a few years, but recently, implemented National Weather Service terms for tornadoes, which are possible, considerable damage, catastrophic damage, something like that from the plain states you, that you would see is now being put into some of the Hurricane Center uh, advisories for description. So do you have a sense of how much impact words like that have on getting people to take action? And is this a tactic that you think will be used on other high-end landfalls? Yeah, words matter. They really do. And, and you look at it, that's why, you know, I mentioned, I'm not sure there's a single media interview or a podcast that you've, we've done together that I don't throw and insert social science somewhere in the conversation, but it is. I mean, you can have a perfect forecast. If it's not actionable and understood, there's still a failure in the process. So you have to be able to connect that with, with words that matter. And, and in this case, the backstory here is when, when you come out with, a, you know, putting out a 15 to 20 foot storm surge forecast, it was hard to read that on air. You know, you, you get goosebumps. I mean, it, we all know what that is. And until you look up a light pole or the side of a building, um, that's when the word unsurvivable comes to mind. You can't survive it. And it's not just this gentle rise of water. And Laura, that was a violent, a violent rise in the water that took houses off their foundation. So when we were, you know, leading up to, to landfall, and getting some indication that not everybody was out of there, um, that that um, that that sprung a lot of emotion here, and and you know talking to the emergency managers and the, the state of Louisiana, 
uh, we were talking about how do, how do we, you know, thinking about ways to, to make sure everyone's out of there. And that's when the unsurvivable word, we, we, we came up with it. Jamie Rome, our storm surge unit, Mike Brennan and the you know, HSU, the hurricane specialist. We all, you know, talked about it. Unsurvivable came, came about. Here's what happened. So in, in, in the post analysis, talking with the, the state of Louisiana and the state director, which was on one of our all hands calls, uh, talking to the staff, he said the word really helped get the stragglers out and especially help those with special needs get get out of there. In the end, what we were told, there was 100% evacuation compliance in those areas leading up to Laura. And as a result, with nobody there, there's nobody to hurt. And that's what happened. And so, so you think about it, no, no fatalities in Hurricane Laura from that storm surge. Um, but I will say, I have to put this in here because we need some help. We lost more people from carbon monoxide poisoning than we did storm surge. And that's the case since 2017. You look back at 14 hurricane landfalls. We've had some big ones since 2017. Um, we've lost more people in carbon monoxide than we have uh, storm surge. So I think we're making a difference with the storm surge. We got to keep communicating these, these indirect fatalities when it comes to carbon monoxide generator use um, safety after the storm. So that's the backstory on it. Um, it's a success story, but but please realize that you can't use that word every time. Mm -hmm. If we're going to use unsurvivable, it truly needs needs to mean it's unsurvivable. Yeah, the special needs people too. It's hard for them to evacuate, especially in Louisiana down there where they have to go a long distance. It's difficult. Ken, I know you have to go, so we're going to let you take off. I want to give you uh, our congratulations on a, a great season um, in spite of everything, <laughs> including every you know all the steps that had to be taken behind the scenes. So best to you and your team. And, of course, we'll be in close touch with you here all season long. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, thanks for getting the word out and doing uh, – you know, podcasts like this, because unless we get the word out, you know, then, then we lose that ability to educate the public. So thanks for what you all do. All right, Ken. Thanks very much. Wow, that was quite a season at the National Hurricane Center. You know, last March, so March of 2020, was when we first kind of figured out early in March that the year could be a problem from a broadcasting standpoint, from an operational standpoint at the Hurricane Center. And uh, all of us kind of sprung into action to try and figure out how we were going to do our TV jobs or do our forecasting jobs or everything else. Uh, and it really is amazing that at the Hurricane Center, they had to do that just like we all did. But then they had this unbelievable system dumped on top of them. <laughs> you know, yeah. what a confluence, right? And you raised a good point that I hadn't considered before, Brian, and that is, yeah, you can work from home and you could forecast from home and issue warnings, I'm sure, or watches and stuff like that from home. But if there were a storm that were heading towards South Florida, that wouldn't have worked last year with home because you would have lost communication. I mean, you lose your Internet, you can't do the job. You, you need to be at the Hurricane Center to do that. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Uh, but it was certainly a remarkable year that tested everybody, but especially the hurricane center. Yeah, in, in um, Irma, in South Florida, I mean, it was essentially it was a tropical storm. It was a really annoying tropical storm because the wind blew for so long. But it was essentially a tropical storm in terms of wind intensity. And a lot of people lost their communications and their Internet and, and whatnot. I, I don't know what percentage of, of the community did. A lot of people lost power. So that's a tropical storm. 
uh, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it comes to operating the National Hurricane Center, they can't take a chance on that. So any kind of a system coming towards South Florida, they have to do something different. And, and uh, you know, who would have thought that we would have 30 named storms and not have South Florida involved in, uh, you know, actually having a real threat? Crazy. Yeah, almost out of sheer luck, you know, if that orientation of the high pressure that steered everything, everything was going toward the Gulf. The right. Gulf was the target. Right. We're up the East Coast, long. as it turned out. Yeah, and if that high had been oriented or slightly weaker or just in a different position, then that could have easily been Florida. Uh, so it was just the way that the geometry of it all worked out. But uh, nobody would have guessed that, that 30 named storms and Florida doesn't see anything other than you know, Issa Eas in a close call and, you know, Sally, we had Sally. Uh, in the panhandle, yeah, call. there were more threats in the panhandle and Sally, of course. But but uh, what Ken was talking about, I mean, it's worth reiterating for a South Florida audience, if you compare two memorable storms, one being Irma, the other being Andrew, there are a lot of, of uh, differences, right? They are about as completely different as you can imagine but to me the most fundamental difference is that Irma we watched for 10 days or I don't even remember how long it was it seemed like forever right mm -hmm. easy a week or eight or nine days and Andrew uh, really most people didn't pay attention to until the day before it hit something until Saturday was really the day because it was a tropical storm on Friday five o'clock Saturday morning, it became a category one hurricane for the first time. And it hit five o'clock Monday morning. So it hit exactly 48 hours later, right? So what Ken was talking about in terms of preparing this timelines, you know, is somebody really going to gear up in a big way for a tropical storm in South Florida? You know, some people, yes, most people, no. It's just not, I mean, that's the big, the big threat. I think. Yeah, and if you think about the granddaddy of all hurricanes, uh, 1935, you know, a similar story as Andrew, where it was a small, weak storm a couple days out, and say that that were to happen today and it were to strike the Keys, the Keys, that's a 36 hour evacuation, you know, to get everybody out of that two lane highway to, to get the people out. And that's another concern that I would have too. I mean, the, the concern goes all over, but especially, especially in South Florida and especially in the Keys with that kind of uh, restriction that they have as far as the traffic flow. Yeah. For Southeast so, Florida, I mean, you know, this is a massive problem in the Tampa Bay area and, and Southwest Florida in Southeast Florida. Uh, we're in a little better shape in some ways because if people that live on the barrier Island only have to go across the causeway to high ground, you know, high ground is nearby. In the Keys, high ground is a long way away, like you said, as it is in, for people that live out on St. Petersburg Beach or in southwest Florida in the low-lying parts of southwest Florida. You know, getting to high ground is a schlep. It's, sure. It's just a long way, so it's a big difference. And we talked about earlier the uh, issue of, you know, are we going to get back to having fewer storms? Uh, that oscillation, that up-and-down nature is called the AMO or the Atlantic Multi-Decadal uh, Oscillation. It's very interesting. I mentioned Bill Gray, who used to talk about, you know, how the AMO was uh, was going to mean that we were going to have a lot more storms. And when I say he used to talk about, he used to talk about in the 80s, 
and uh, early 90s, and they used to say that Florida is a, is a uh, sore thumb sticking out into Hurricane Alley. And then in 1995, almost on schedule, on Bill's schedule, it kicked back into being busy and it's kind of been busy ever since with a little lull uh, here and there. But he, he talked about how that you can measure the saltiness of the Gulf Stream and the saltier it is, the faster it sinks in the North Atlantic when it gets cold, that the faster the cold water sinks. So you look at that and, and you can use that as a proxy for how warm the ocean is going to be. The, the Gulf Stream moves faster and then it moves slower, faster, slower, and you get the Atlantic water temperatures oscillating in a similar way, and that changes the, the uh, number of storms. But... Now there are all these questions about, uh, I mentioned earlier about pollution in the 70s and 80s and other factors, and it's going to be really interesting to see how all that uh, kind of sorts out, you know, and how, how what the science, scientific research is on that. And we'll ask a lot of folks this season, I think, about that. Yeah, you know, until last year, I think that you had questioned this or brought up the question of the AMO. I was always taught it was pretty much just understood. It was just the way it is. We have this measured oscillation that happens over uh, 20 to 40 years, something like that. And then whenever you brought up the question, I thought, I, I never realized that this was something that we could uh, prod at. But what's interesting to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, is the man that coined the term or so-called discovered or described the AMO is also the same person that's saying no, no longer. And that's Michael Mann. Is that correct? That's right. Well, he, he came up with the term AMO uh, and, you know, he and other researchers uh, have talked about it. Like I said, Gary Emanuel also uh, cast doubts on, on the conventional thinking that it was a more complex thing having to do with pollution coming off of Europe uh, during that time. So we talk about the Clean Air Act being kind of the end of it, but it actually, when you think about the way the air flows, the air flows over the ocean from Europe over the ocean. It doesn't flow from the United States over the tropics, right? It comes the other way. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, so it has been talked about off and on, but the question is when you really get down to, to examining it, is it all related to the atmosphere or is there an ocean component related as well and how do they interact? Um, we have a couple people coming up, notably next week, Dr. Phil Klotzbach will be here on the day that he issues his new seasonal forecast. Um, and uh, we have a scientist from the University of Miami, Dr. Amy Clement, uh, who's done a lot of work on the AMO. Um, so anyway, we'll have lots of folks to talk uh, about this season uh, about that. It's a, certainly is interesting since we're all kind of sitting around in South Florida kind of wondering when was this cycle going to end? <laughs> and now if they're saying it's not going to end, that, you know, okay, you don't have to think about that anymore. It's kind of annoying. I think a lot of us would like to think that maybe it will end. Yeah, exactly. You know? Well, it won't be the same every year that, that uh, you can bet on. Okay, so next uh, week it's Dr. Phil Klotzbach. That'll be Thursday. June the 4th, the day um, his and his forecasting partner, Dr. Michael Bell's uh, Colorado State University forecast is released. So be sure you make a note to uh, join us then. And be sure you subscribe to, your, to this podcast, the Brian Norcross podcast, 
on uh, your Apple or Android apps, and you'll get notified whenever a new podcast uh, is ready this hurricane season. So until then, for Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Stay safe, be well, get vaccinated, and we'll see you here next week.